Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are in a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. We want you to know that during COVID, we're holding one big service outdoors and we'd love for you to join us whenever you can. And now, here's our teaching for this week. We hope it leads you to encounter the way of Jesus more fully. Well, hello, everyone. We hope that you're doing well. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are, whenever it is that you're joining us. My name is Jed, and it is an absolute privilege to get to serve as one of our pastors on staff here. You might be joining us at our 1030 live stream. And if you're a guest with us today, we also want to let you know that on Sunday mornings, outdoors in our parking lot, we have one big service and we'd love to see you there. If you're available and willing in the future, perhaps you're watching this on demand or joining us on our podcast. But again, we're so glad that you're with us. We're in the sixth week of a sermon series on Sunday mornings where we're studying through Matthew chapter five through seven, which constitutes some of the most important chapters in all of our Bibles. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And every week for the last several Sundays, we have been looking at the words of Jesus, his quintessential teaching, that which inspired so much more, not just for the early Christ followers and how they lived, but the rest of our New Testament as well. And throughout the centuries, it has continued to influence so much of how we look at the world and then hopefully how our actions and our lives follow behind the way of Jesus. So this morning we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 through 30 and I'll read that to you now. It says this, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. I was in the fourth grade and I was at this place called Featherstone Christian Camp. It was a home away from home for me. It was the first week-long summer camp experience, however, that I was having. And Featherstone, it was a great backdrop in my childhood picture albums. You could find pictures of me as an early toddler taking steps or in elementary school riding my bike. And Featherstone was this camp that our church was deeply connected to. My grandfather helped build some of the cabins up there that we would stay at. And my dad would come on long workday weekends and I'd see him working around that camp and it was nothing impressive. Featherstone Christian Camp was nothing like Hume Lake. The landscape was dry. It was a fire hazard. There was a mess hall and 
a fire pit in the middle of the land and a janky foosball table and a snack shop. But we loved Featherstone Christian Camp. I love that place. I, I hold it dear to my heart. It's at Featherstone Christian Camp where in sixth grade I would be presented with the gospel for the first time by a college student named Nick and I would walk away in the dark and I would make a covenant with God. Uh, one where I would say, God, if you take me, then I promise to go in the vocational ministry for the rest of my life. And I've talked about that in the past and clearly I did not understand the level of commitment that I was taking and yet, at least right now, here I am. But on this particular day as a fourth grader, I decided to take part in something that I'd never done on my own up until that point. I took my little Salty Bible, Remember Salty, the songbook, that blue character where we would learn songs and sing. And I took that Salty Bible and I walked behind the cafeteria or the mess hall up a familiar rock face. And I climbed up there and I went to sit down at a spot that I felt as though throughout the, the centuries, God had carved in the rock with wind and with rain. And however he did that, a simple and majestic spot for me to sit down. And I'd sat in that little crevice many times before. You could look out all over the campground. And I took my Bible and I had no idea what I was doing. I never just sat down to read my Bible on my own. And I took my Bible and I remember closing my eyes and basically asking God to do some sort of Pocahontas theology move with me wherever the wind would blow. And I closed my eyes and the wind was rustling. And I kid you not, as a fourth grader, I stuck my finger down onto my Bible. I opened up my eyes and I saw these words in Job 31, 1. I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a woman. I was in fourth grade at the time and I share that comically and I think I've actually shared that from the stage before and every time I've shared, I, I, I've given it its jest. It, it's been a joke of sorts. And in fact, even coming up into this weekend and talking about lust and adultery, I told Ritt that I'd give him some public grief. Uh, so Ritt, uh, here I am. I'm going to do it on Sunday morning live too. Uh, I told Ritt that this might be the one time where him telling us that he was a firefighter uh, might not necessarily work in his favor because all those stories that, that might have come from the fire station. But in all seriousness, uh, my little story aside about the first time I did quiet time or, or joking about Britt being a fireman, I knew that coming up to this weekend, this was actually a really great opportunity for us because the topic of lust and adultery and all that comes with it typically aren't spoken to in these settings. And when they are, I think we have done injustice to them in, in a number of ways. And so hopefully today, this begins a conversation for us that takes seriously the words of Jesus, not just for our thoughts and our behavior, but for a picture that he has for us for life as a whole in his kingdom. Now, I imagine that as soon as you hear the words lust and adultery, that 
perhaps some of you out there, your posture changed, or maybe you took a deep gulp. Maybe you're thinking about a person who you think this sermon is for. I imagine that some people saw our email come out and they actually skipped church on Sunday. And maybe the attendance or the viewership will be down this weekend. But just like me, close my eyes and, and putting my hand on that page and saying Job 31, 1. I think there's something here for all of us. This isn't just a message for men. This isn't just a message for that other person. God has something to say for each and every single one of us. So I want to show you a little continuum here. And I think that when we talk about issues like this, we may be prone to find ourselves or to gravitate toward extremes. You see on that left side for you, you're looking at the word shame. And maybe as soon as we say lust and adultery, you're, you're plopped right there. You feel your heart moving in that direction because of a secret or something recently or something even from your past or a difficult point in the relationship that you're in and you find yourself immediately feeling shame. Maybe you think about lust and adultery and you can see the ways that we have done a disservice to so many of us who grew up in the churches. We have talked about sex in an incredibly shameful way in a way that has made us super fearful of it and inadvertently made it more difficult for us. And so we don't want to just end up in that space. And the goal of today isn't to push us further in that direction. Yet on the other end of that extreme, on the right side, the goal isn't for us to cultivate more feelings of self-righteousness. We, we tend to be good at that. You might be feeling good about yourself because the good streak that you're on, whether it's about pornography or having your eyes bounce or cutting off that relationship, whatever it may be, might be pushing you to feel self-righteous or perhaps there's self-righteousness because you don't believe that lust or adultery is an issue for you. And maybe at this moment in your life, it isn't. But again, Regardless of where you fall on that spectrum, the goal isn't for us to push to those extremes. And we'll come back to that in a little bit. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. This is a human issue. There's something for all this, which is why I love what the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 4. The author writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We don't think about this often because of our high Christology, and that's a big word for us when we talk about the way that we elevate Jesus to be the Christ, the Savior, the Messiah, the Chosen one. And when we say Christology, we're talking about how we view Jesus on the spectrum of his humanness and his divinity and how difficult it is for us to fathom that he is fully God and fully man. And that fully man part is important because as the author of Hebrew writes, if Jesus is a man, 
if he has all of the hormones, if he has the genitals, if, if he is who he is, a person, though God incarnate, God with us, that is to say that in his life, he was absolutely tempted as we are as human beings. And yet he does, of course, the impossible. He is without sin. It's why he can be, as the author of Hebrew writes in the first chapter, purification for our sins. And later writes how it is once and for all, how sacrifices don't have to be made over and over. And so there are a few things there that are really helpful for us. One, it reminds us that God absolutely understands. And we can't pretend like this is outside of his scope of understanding or experience. And there's a second component to this, and it falls in the next verse, as the author of Hebrews writes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In other words, today, as we set forth to talk about these things, our focus is on Jesus the Christ. And we will take sin seriously, but we will ultimately always magnify Jesus as Savior, as the one who makes this possible. So here's the, the flow for the rest of our message today. Instead of just titling this lust and adultery and, 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 and thinking I might scare some more people off, the title of this message is actually how we're going to work through it. It shall not, so then, so that, so what? So the shall not, the so then, and the so that are going to let us walk through these few verses relatively quickly. And then the so what is hopefully going to give us an opportunity to have productive conversation about this and to consider deeply and thoughtfully, again, what it looks like for us to live as followers of Jesus. And so let's start with the shall not. Going back to the text is pretty straightforward. The shall not here is to commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus, interestingly, doesn't take it a step further. I would cross that out if I could, but really he takes it backwards. And what I mean by that is this. If you look at the original prohibition in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, Again, it's pretty straightforward, and this is what Jesus is referencing. Everyone would have known it. You shall not commit adultery. Again, it, it's straightforward. Do not do that. And yet, for the people of that time, those considered the ancients, those long ago, even for Jesus' day and age, when they looked back and reflected on those before them, they would consider them the ancients, those of old, there was this understanding that the prohibition against adultery really had so much leeway for men to still get what they wanted, usually when they wanted it. Because as we've said before, in a patriarchal male-dominated society, the sexual ethic wasn't what we might think the Bible would espouse, at least culturally in how that was lived out. See, it wasn't just about men being able to have multiple wives. It was the ability for a man to go out and have sexual relations with 
almost whomever he would please, outside of, and we see this a few verses later in Exodus chapter 20, his neighbor's wife. And you'll find when you study that text that begins with not covering your, coveting your neighbor's house and then your neighbor's wife because women were considered to be property. They were considered to be objects. And so for you to covet your neighbor's house and then your neighbor's wife was to be going after, essentially stealing what was not rightfully yours. And we might think that we live in a sexually promiscuous culture. And of course, in many ways we do. It's, it's rampant, even though studies are showing us that for whatever reason, people more and more are actually beginning to engage less in sex. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. But that's besides the point. Even if we see ourselves in a culture, we are sex-saturated and it is everywhere and the temptation abounds. My friends, all you have to do is read your Bibles to recognize that it's not as neat and tidy as we would want it to be. If any of you are avid readers, you might know the experience of reading a novel right, and seeing the ways that the author writes and, and talks about characters and you filling out extra details in your mind and imagining what those interactions would look like. And then if that novel ever becomes a feature film, perhaps you, you're met with disappointment because subtleties are missed or the way that you envision that character or that interaction just didn't line up. Well, guys, if the Bible, we could even just say the book of Genesis, that'd be a great one. If the book of Genesis were made into a film, quite frankly, you and I would probably be embarrassed to try and watch it. It is scandalous and messy and gives us a picture of utter depravity and distortion and clearly a far cry away from the way in which it began and it was intended to be. And so when Jesus references this antithesis, Britt last week talked about the six antitheses, and this is the second one. When he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's not just giving us the straight and skinny. He's going to take it more than a step further. He's actually going to take it backwards by saying, it's not just about the physical act. It's not just about stealing or coveting. It's not about getting to do what you want to do. It's a matter of an issue inside. That's why he says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And the tense there for looks, it's active, it's present. It, it doesn't define when it ends it so any amount of time of looking and staring with lust with that desire has already it's finished it's happened committed adultery with her in his heart again we've seen this before and it's pretty interesting and sad the ways in which we've tried to just work around this stuff and I remember being a teenager and hearing then that the practical admonition was to bounce our eyes you know to look and admire beauty and then to bounce our eyes quickly and then sadly we would just tell the girls that it was their job 
uh, to, to cover themselves up. I'm not saying that there aren't practical things for us to consider, and we'll do that stuff later, but remember here again that the shall not for Jesus is about so much more than just behavior acting out. He's going after the depravity of our being and our hearts and how we do not clearly understand relationship and other human beings and our desire and what we yearn for, not just sexually, but as a whole. And so he intensifies this clearly. So here's the so then. Jesus says, if that's what it takes, just that looking with lust and you already committing adultery, that thing that would be forbade. He says this, so then deal with it drastically. And the drastic measures here are at all costs. And the way that Jesus speaks about this is with self-mutilation. Like it says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. And then shortly thereafter, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. We'll talk a little bit later about what we do with something like this and how understandably we go to Jesus speaking figuratively and hyperbolically. And I'm glad that is actually the case. And yet it says something about us, but we'll talk about that in a moment. Let's go to the so that. If we're moving through this text quickly, the readers might hear that you shall not commit adultery, and then you should deal with it drastically, self-mutilation, so that all of you can avoid hell. In the Greek, Gehenna, Britt talked about this last week. I've spoken about this in the past, that Gehenna was outside of the city walls in this valley place where centuries before children were sacrificed to a pagan god, Molech. And so it was this detestable place that eventually became used for throwing out trash and, and shards of pottery and, and where fire was. And so that's where the imagery of that comes. But again, so that all of you can avoid hell and most of your body can enter eternal life. Again, if we're looking at the text just plainly, we shall not commit adultery. So then you should deal with it drastically and cut off parts of you that might cause you to sin so that your whole being can avoid Gehenna and then most of you can enter eternal life. In other words, again, it'd be better for you, of course, to miss out entirely on hell than for you to get into eternal life and be missing a right eye and a right hand. Here's a question that we should ask ourselves, is the point of Jesus intensifying the law so that no one can enter into heaven only partially maimed? In other words, as he is breezing through these topics, and again, Jesus doesn't preach a whole sermon on this like we're doing today. This is just one 
bit of the Sermon on the Mount, and we've talked again about how Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Everything would find fulfillment in him. He is the one that on the cross says it is finished. But does he teach us these things? And in this moment, does he say this so that in intensifying the law, people could enter into heaven only partially missing body parts? It's a ridiculous image, right? To come up to the judgment, looking at God out of your left eye, maybe waving at him with your left hand and hoping that everything would be okay because you don't have your right one. I don't mean to speak sacrilegiously, but clearly as Jesus speaks figuratively and hyperbolically, he is seriously thinking about something so much bigger than us taking a scalpel or a knife to body parts and ending up partially there in his presence someday. So what do we do with this? What's the so what? Where does this lead us? Where does that take us to? You know, one of the things that we are told in Bible college all the time, and it works really well here again, is that it's not just helpful for us to throw out words or phrases like, we just do what the Bible says, or we just take the Bible literally. Because this is the perfect example of a passage of Scripture and we don't even teach about often, and we definitely do not want to take literally. There's not a person behind this screen, I don't think, and I would hope not, who decided at one point in time that they would attempt to sever a body part. And quite frankly, when I look out on Sunday morning at all the people, I'm not going to find an individual. And I have my limbs. And I have my eyes. And if we were to literally take these words of Jesus, we would be reduced to nothingness, to stumps, because there aren't enough members of our body to account for the life of sin and missing out on God's heart and intent for us. So what do we do with this? How do we take seriously who Jesus is and his words and example, what we find in scripture and not just that, but what we see playing out in real time in our lives. I'd like to go back to that continuum earlier. And there was a question mark in that middle space that we've replaced with a word. See, early on, that question mark, it had arrows that were pointing out and how we might digress or un unfortunately move toward shame or, or self-righteousness, these extremes. And how instead of moving in those directions, there's actually something for us here and now conviction that ought to grow because conviction is a powerful thing. And when we talk about lust and when we talk about adultery, 
when we talk about sexual sin, when we talk about pornography, when we talk about affairs, when we talk about how we look at other people, when we talk about things that are a part of every single one of our stories in our lives, conviction is important. And Jesus isn't here to make us feel just good about ourselves. And yet, he's here to reclaim the good and pure image of God who we were created in the image of. We're image bearers and we reflect that. And so there's this rediscovering of the way it's supposed to be. And that happens with seeing. It happens with seeing with how we look, how we fix our eyes, and the thoughts that continue to come to us as we look to have the mind of Christ, as we look to remember that we're called to live in His kingdom under His rule and reign. And that seeing for us can help us from vacillating and swinging back and forth between shame and self-righteousness. And so how are we to see and who are we to see? I'd like you to look at these three simple categories. How do we see God? How do we see ourselves? And how do we see others? I really could, and I, <clears throat> excuse me, did think about it. That at this point in the message, I could leave this slide up and I could have each and every single one of us just reflect intently on every one of those lines and to consider the ways that we have depraved and distorted and fallen thinking because we're all sinners, because creation has been subject to sin and the fall. How are we a far cry removed from the way that God intended it to be and how we see God and how we see ourselves and how we see others? Do that for a moment. I mean, look at that. Where are you erring? And it's difficult because it's like, we could say, well, how am I actually supposed to see God? I'm not really sure. I have so many different places in scripture that seem to point me to a God who I can't even keep track of. And how can I see myself clearly when I'm at the mercies of my feelings or the moment or the most recent experience and similarly others as well? The answer to all of this again is who we believe Jesus to be. Because when we look at Jesus the Christ and we see his interactions and we see his life, when you go through what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you read the gospel accounts, when you see the ways in which the early church began to reflect on him risen and ascended and commissioning and empowering and sending us out on our mission to make disciples of all nations, you find the perfect molding and synthesis 
of ability and opportunity and reality to see God correctly, to see ourselves and to see others. It's in the image of God. People who were created for so much more than just using and satisfying or avoiding or modifying behavior. So despite what I say next to conclude us, I'd encourage you when you have time apart from this message and when you think about lust and adultery as the act of looking wrongfully and thinking wrongfully, reflect again on in learning to be like Jesus and following after his way, how we have the opportunity to see God and ourselves and others in drastically different ways. But let's start to round this out with another practical saying practically, when it comes to lust and adultery, there are real measures for us to take it wouldn't be helpful for us to say, just stop doing that. And then expect people to just be able to do that. And yet we do have to grapple with the fact that Jesus does say it straightforward and he moves on. And so even though you and I won't on this side of eternity experience complete wholeness and righteousness and holiness. There ought to be a yearning for that, not just so that we can say that we don't do that anymore or as often or whatever it may be. But instead, we recognize that there is life, fulfilling life for us to live. And quite frankly, there isn't a behavior or an action or a habit or component to our lives that you and I ought not to think deeply about how we should approach it or seek to remove it or ourselves from that scenario, whatever it may be that would provoke us toward lust and adultery. I mean, I could share some of my story and, and I could talk about me and Mal and, and our marriage. And I could say confidently that it has been over six years since I've seen pornography. And yet that's not just the goal for me to, to pat myself on the back for that. Uh, that's just not how that works. And there are certainly real measures to be taken for that. There's a reason why I don't spend much time on the internet or I don't spend much time watching TV or shows. And yet again, the goal isn't to just go after behavior that's symptomatic of really a deeper issue because I am aware of the fact that as a human being, as a sinner, as a person, I'm not going to be able to, for the rest of my life, somehow avoid my fallen way of seeing other people or interacting with other people or walking in this life. I have a distorted whole self 
that is being taken and delivered and saved by Jesus. And so I share a little bit of that to remind whoever it is that is watching or listening that there isn't any measure of us just stopping something or avoiding something or not doing that extra bad thing. It's not about just that. Of course, again, there's so much for us to do, real measures for us to take. And I can't tell you what that is for you, but you don't need me to explain that to you you are probably aware of the things in your life that have room and opportunity for you and for me to grow in the grace of God. So because of that, here's, and notice there's a semicolon there, here's the the however, here's the dependent clause. There has to be more that will motivate our hearts toward ongoing transformation. If you think that the goal is just to stop doing something or to stay away from those people or that place or that person or that website or that movie, whatever it is, if you think that the point is just to cut off and maim, then you've missed the whole of Jesus. There has to be something that will motivate, and I say hearts, I mean, the whole of who we are, our being. Because to love God fully, our hearts, our mind, our soul, our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself is to say that I am more concerned with life as a whole than me just stopping behaviors. So what's going to motivate you and I? What will give us reason to think that something can change? Because something does have to change for all of us. This isn't a pass on any sin. This is a picture, hopefully, of us moving forward, Jesus the Christ, and recognizing and seeing that the way that we are isn't who He created us to be. So what will motivate you? What will motivate me? What, what is there for us to actually believe is possible? And here's where we talk about purpose. Because purposefully, Jesus has a fuller, more fulfilling invitation to us, to you, and to me life and relationships in his kingdom. When Jesus speaks to these original hearers, when he's addressing at that point in time his small group of disciples, it's not later, the crowd start coming as Jesus is teaching, but at this point in time, he's early in his sermon. Who knows who was there yet? He was probably speaking just to these disciples, most of whom were teenage boys. He's giving them, again, something that is so radical because in their worldview and in their lives, as 
agents of their being, they could essentially say, I'm still in the right with God as long as I don't do that. But as they will follow Jesus and hear him speak over and over about his message, this was his ministry and his message, Repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, that their whole minds and their beings would change and shift because they recognize that under the rule and reign and kingship of Jesus, life would look differently and subversive. And so as Jesus is inviting them, he invites us to something that God always intended. I'm going to close up today by reflecting on a sermon I taught some time ago. I think the series we're in was called Peace on Earth. And and we were talking about peace during the Christmas season. And the message that I gave was called Peace and Pieces, I think. It was a a play on words. And I used the imagery of, of puzzle pieces being just strewn across a table and how difficult it would be to try and put together a picture without the box and seeing the picture. And so when we think about lust and adultery and all of the other things that Jesus speaks of and will speak of and what we'll hear in the rest of our messages, my hope and prayer is that the picture that you're attempting to create with those puzzle pieces isn't one that just gets to say, I'm better than everyone, or I can do this on my own. But instead, the box top would be a picture of Jesus living. It's dynamic, quite frankly. You can't just capture the life of Jesus in in a still way. And, And that's what fails for that imagery. The picture that we have of Jesus the Christ is him looking at those Pharisees and saying, do you see this woman? It's him looking at tax collectors and being able to sit with them and share a table and a meal. It's him looking at the diseased and physically afflicted those who seem outside of the providence of God and going to touch them. It's him being with those with demons, people who are clearly ill upstairs and that manifesting in a whole host of ways and him not being scared to cast out. It's him seeing the Samaritan woman at the well It's him at the resurrection with Mary. In all these instances, we see Jesus was human beings. Again, it's not a male or female issue. In Jesus the Christ, we remember and rediscover that men and women, you and I, were created in the image of God for his glory which means that others would look at him and recognize him as the one who gives us shalom, peace, wholeness. And so may you and I, as we think about our sinfulness, as we think about 
our lives, as we consider what God would have us do with this, when more than anything, we look to Jesus Christ as Savior and begin to model after Him a life where men and women together, we work on behalf of each other so that ultimately we would say, it's because of Him, it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. Let's pray. God, there is no shortage of things that could be said. And, and God, I'm aware that in messages like this, it's easy, just like when we talk about any other topic, God, it's easy for us to miss seeing people. Every single person with ears who has heard God has stories, stories of secrecy or shame, confusion, hurt. God, every single one of us could think about how we are certainly not deserving of your grace and your kindness. And yet, God, I pray that as we consider a topic like this, God, we wouldn't just go after symptoms, but we would consider that our security and our desire to be desired and loved and accepted and forgiven and taken care of, God, that all of that finds wholeness in you. And in that security, God, I pray that for every man and for every woman listening, that we would remember them the family of God. We have an opportunity to partner with one another as brothers and sisters who point to you, a good father, a kind savior, and a spirit who empowers us to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. We love you so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're so grateful that you would spend this time with us. God bless you. Peace to you. Grace to you. And we look forward to continuing to partner together, brothers and sisters, men and women, our mission to help people find and follow Jesus. Hey, everybody. It's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need help with something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. Or if you'd like to know more about us, just go to our website, sunridgechurch.org, and you'll know what to do from there. We hope you'll listen in again next week. But in the meantime, wherever you go, deepen faith, bring hope, and live love.